HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by One House. Learn more about our comprehensive hospitality solutions and our new app, One House Beacon, at one-haus.com. Hey everyone, this is David Tatashore, lead engineer and studio manager of the Heritage Radio Network, and I'm reaching out to ask for your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount supports our weekly programming and our mission to make the world a more equitable, sustainable, and delicious place. Plus, you'll receive exclusive member benefits like monthly playlists, discounted event tickets, party invitations, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Make your gift at heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Happy holidays from all of us here at Heritage Radio Network. Welcome to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. We are coming to you live from Roberta's Restaurant in Bushwick, Brooklyn. It is Wednesday, December 14th, 2016. This is our last show of the year. Woohoo! And this is the 127th episode of this series, which is dedicated to behind-the-scenes talents in the hospitality industry. So today my guest is an award-winning kitchen designer, and I will introduce him in a moment. First, as I do on every show, I will start out with my PR tip. Later, we will have my speed round game, industry news discussion, solo dining experience, and the final question. As the founder of Bayer Public Relations, I'm going to tip the show off with my PR tip of the week. So today's tip is to rely on referrals. Trust the people you trust, including friends, family, and colleagues, when you are seeking a new employee, employer, or client. No offense to resumes, interviews, and Google searches, but they simply can't beat a personal recommendation. There's nothing better. So refer and be referred. That's my tip today. Very happy to have my guest here. It is Jimmy Yu. He's the founding Yui. I'm sorry. I already messed that up. Jimmy Yui, founding principal of Yui Design, a James Beard award-winning kitchen design agency. Jimmy, a graduate of Cornell University's Hotel Administration and Architectural Schools, 
has had a career spanning a quarter century in food service and hospitality design, consulting, and management. He is recognized as one of the world's leading kitchen designers, receiving wide acclaim, including a James Beard Award for the Sony Club in New York City and media attention on the Food Network for the installation of Del Posto's Kitchen for Chef Mario Batali. So welcome, Jimmy. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be the uh, the last uh, show of the season. Last one in 2016. Well, I'm honored to have you on the show. I've We've just met today. I've known about you. We follow each other on social media. Likewise. Yeah. So um, your career has been so impressive. Um, I like to start out with my guest backgrounds and how you got into the industry. Sure. Um, I think I uh, started in this business mostly because um, I'm a third-generation hospitality person. Uh, I grew up in a Chinese restaurant in Tokyo. And um, as a child, as soon as I could see over the bar top, I was a bartender. It probably looked very, very strange in the dining room to see a spiky little head <laughs> above the, the, the countertop. But uh, I was there with an ice pick back when uh, ice machines didn't exist, n- n- chipping away at uh, blocks of ice making cocktails. Oh, wow. And, um, you know, my, my family is... Uh, a, a, they were the second-generation hospitality family, but really, my parents wound up in the restaurant business by accident because of um, their immigration to Japan post-revolution in China. And I grew up in, uh, in a restaurant thinking it was perfectly normal to hop um, empty tables doing homework at night, but uh, in the eyes of my parents, you know, it was, uh, it was an occupation that, they, that, that really came to them. It was not something that they had chosen. Right, but obviously it it stuck with you. So you went to school. Yeah, it really sticks to people, doesn't it? You know, I I meet so many people in this business where somehow it was in their DNA, and and um, I think uh, most um, Chinese sons like me. You know, I'm born in Japan, so I, I I had a Japanese passport. But you know, my parents are both Chinese, and most Chinese sons are supposed to become doctors. You know. And I had that destiny thrust upon me also. And when I discovered that uh, I didn't like blood and I didn't like sick people, I had to figure out um, how I was going to overcome this um, this uh, predetermined uh, occupation of uh, being a doctor. And I had this really insanely stupid idea that uh, because I like to draw, I'm, I, I thought I, I, I was a bit of a bit of an artist, right? I, and um, my, my father, many, many people in my family were artists. My father was a great painter. My aunt was a great painter. And none of, none of them, as, and me, uh, we were, it was never within the realm of serious consideration to become an artist because you become a starving artist, and that, that's clearly not acceptable. So my math was, since I like to draw, and I heard that the people who draw, like in architecture, get paid to draw. Ergo, I should become an architect. It was this. It's good abs- logic. It was it was this incredibly stupid logic at the time. <laughs> but I wound up applying to architecture school, mm-hmm. and uh, I enrolled at uh, Cornell um, in, in architecture, and I was there for three years in a five-year program. And by the time you get to third year. Uh, 60, you know, two-thirds of the people who you enter the class with are already gone. I mean, so by the time you get to third year, you're, you're a lifer. And it was, it's really not uh, 
something you do. You, 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 don't, you don't decide to quit architecture after all that commitment. But uh, I was in uh, school during the, uh, the 70s, uh, and architects and engineers were uniformly unemployed because of one of the first really serious recessions that the United States experienced. And it seemed crazy to me that um, architects and engineers who worked very, very hard at Cornell would wind up uh, unemployed, and all my partying friends from the hotel school were all, they, they would promise me that uh, if I was unemployed, they would hire me to be their waiter because they would have jobs. And since I grew up in a restaurant, I clearly would survive being a waiter, and they would offer me a job, and I shouldn't have any problems. And that just, just seemed completely bizarre to me, that they should be employed while they drank, and the rest of us who worked very, very hard would wind up unemployed. And I did a little bit of checking, mm-hmm. and sure enough, uh, kids out of the hotel school were uniformly employable. And they were well-educated, they were well-trained, they were really well, really trained so that they, would be, they, they could be employed. And so I made this... At the time, um, a relatively uh, controversial choice for my parents, uh, for my colleagues, for the architecture school. I mean, nobody quits architecture after three years. And I switched over to the hotel school where I graduated. And sure enough, when I graduated, I had three job offers, like they promised. And I was amazed. I was really happy. And um, one, uh, I, I got a fourth job offer from an alumni. And uh, he was a hotelie who was giving a lecture as, a, as an alumni, and he had a weird little uh, consulting practice in D.C., and his company designed kitchens. Ah. And I didn't even know the occupation existed. Honestly, you know, who? Mm-hmm. What do you mean you design kitchens, right? And the guy uh, said, uh, you know, if you have any technical skills, like uh, if you think you can draw, if you think you can manage other than uh, pouring a drink at behind a bar, you know, come talk to me. So I approached, uh, approached uh, my soon-to-become mentor and told him that I could draw. And he offered me a job because I could draw. And I became a kitchen designer not knowing that the, the industry existed. Uh, back then, uh, we drew by hand, old-fashioned. And I remember uh, my first visit to a studio where people were uh, hunched over a drafting board. And um, when I looked at the image they were drawing, this person that uh, became my colleague was drawing a fryer, except he was, this guy was drawing the fry basket and drawing the mesh by hand. And I looked down and I said, that, that looks like a fry basket you're drawing. I mean, who, who draws fry baskets? And the guy looked up at me and said, how do you know what this is? And I said, well, because I've cooked in those things, right? And then it occurred to me, oh, you know, so when people try to design kitchens, I mean, the, there are people here that, uh, that just ooze the detail of kitchens. This guy was drawing meshes of fry baskets. Of course, we don't have to do that anymore. But the, the kind of attention to detail that was obvious in the occupation really stuck with me. Right, and you had the exact background to know, to be, to be prepared to design kitchens, even though growing up you didn't yeah. really foresee that in the future. I had no idea. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes me think even about my career or, or careers I, I came across when I moved to New York, like food stylists and, and things. There were careers that I didn't know existed that that now seem very common, but it kind of just fell into it. So um, so when you when you started with this firm, what do you remember? I mean, what was your first first project you worked on? Um, the you know, so this is um, I entered this firm, uh, Sini Little in uh, Washington, they, they're basically the company that invented this industry in a way, you know, because kitchen design is a discipline. Um, it's relatively young. It, there, there were no official kitchen designers, consultants right. that did what we do. It, yeah, no. Right. So, you know, I, uh, I wind up um, joining this company and at, at that time, the, the only arena that uh, kitchen designers really functioned in were doing corporate cafeterias, uh, hospitals, you know, institutional projects that, that cost a lot of money, and somebody had to design the technical aspect of it, otherwise you couldn't get the thing built. So that's what uh, my uh, mentor, John Cini, at the time, uh, that, that's what they specialized in. And um, I entered this uh, company, and I wound up uh, my one of my first projects was doing a cafeteria for IBM you know, and um, you learn what cafeterias do and you learn about the throughput and all the stuff and right. and I, I lived many many years I, I worked for this firm for six years and um, I, I did an awful lot of cafeterias and uh, restaurants for them yeah so then I was 1986 you started on your own yes. which is 30 years ago, which yeah. so it's amazing. No, congratulations. 30-year thir- uh, anniversary. Oh, no, yeah. That's, that's like quite an accomplishment. So did you, why did you decide to go on your own? And, and then how did you, what was like a yeah. first project you worked on? Um, I, uh, I realized that, um, you know, the, in a way for me, the, when I was working for uh, Senior Little uh, between 80 and 86, you know, to me, the the industry was a very, very different place as we see it today. You know, the um, what we see in, uh, in in the restaurant world, um, in the culinary world, uh, Food Network didn't exist. You know, mm-hmm. um, uh, chefs and uh, cooks were not brands; they were not rock stars. Um, and as a as a result, when I first started working for John Cini. Actually, restaurants, restaurant projects were far and few between. There, there, were, there just wasn't that kind of movement yet because cooks didn't have the power and the money. Right? But when they, when they were, I loved working for them. I knew that that's something I really enjoyed, something that was very much part of my DNA, you know, growing up in a restaurant and finding with the cooks in the kitchen, that kind of thing. So I knew that... Um, if I wanted to pursue something I loved, which was, which had a lot more culinary in the design, it wasn't through a company, a vehicle that specialized in institutional projects. Stadiums are fun, but they're not that much fun for me. Mm-hmm. And so I went out on my own with the, with the hope that um, there would be cooks that would hire me. And, and back then it was really a hope because, you know, the, there just weren't, that many powerful right. cooks that that had so that could di- command the money, right? Different, different, different era setting, yeah. So than it is today, my one of my the people there, there, 
the person that gave me my first grape is uh, Bar- uh, break is uh, Barry Wine from the Quilter Giraffe. Right. And that was completely happenstance, too, and that Quilter Giraffe was in the AT&T building. And okay. um, when Sony bought the building, I think Barry's uh, lease at the Quilted Giraffe conveyed with a purchase. And the deal was that the, the, he would turn over the Quilted Giraffe space to Sony so that could, it could become some other retail space. But the, I think the entire culinary staff, Barry and the entire Quilted Giraffe staff, wound up on in the, at the Sony Club to become... I would think the world's best corporate dining facility. I mean, you had Barry's guys cooking. Right. And that was splattered all over the New York Times. And um, my wife uh, read the article in the Times and said, uh, hey, you know, this is this. We had eaten at the Cold of Giraffe, and mm-hmm. it was one of those mind bending, altering experiences. Yeah, before yeah. my time, I wish I had, but I've heard it was I amazing. know about it. It, it truly yeah. was an, mm-hmm. an amazing experience. And just because we knew that the restaurant was great and Barry was an amazing, amazing practitioner, um, we made uh, basically a blind call saying, um, you know, is there any, uh, anything uh, a company like us, uh, kitchen designers, can uh, help uh, do at the Sony Club? And lo and behold, we got a call back and Barry said, um, we have this interior room at the, at the Sony building, and we don't really know how to do this yet, so if you want to take a chance and give us a proposal, we'll, we'll look at it, and if we like it, we'll hire you. And the idea was an interior room with five chairs, and Barry's job was to deliver a sushi room where, at the time, Chairman Morita could come and feel at home, but at the same time, when, as he as he pointed out, when Janet Jackson and her crew showed up, <laughs> they would they would think that it was the coolest room on the planet. That was my that was that's a good challenge. That was the <laughs> that was the metric, you know. Yeah. Morita feels happy, and Janet thinks it's cool. So I had a partner uh, back then, uh, Richard Block, and he and I worked on uh, this proposal basically and designed something, sent it to him gratis, and said, uh, "What do you think?" And they liked it. We got retained. We built it. Um, it and you won an award it got, it for it. Award, yes, right? yes, a big and, award. Right. But the funny, the funnier thing was that it got built, and the New York Times, everybody wrote about the fact that the chairman and the president of Sony USA at that time, who commissioned all of this work, including these fancy dining rooms. Our room, the sushi room, became the poster child of ultimate extravagance. And the New York Times wrote about it saying, well, you know, there's this incredibly expensive room that was built with five chairs in it and so extravagant. There's a babbling brook in the middle of the... yeah, And it had this infamy that was kind of interesting, you know? Yeah, well... And, um, the, and, and the, the world of food and beverage is so small that... The first sushi chef that got hired by Barry to do it is no Masa is Morimoto. Yeah, oh Morimoto. Yeah. Okay, Morimoto-san was the the chef there, and then he went from um, from uh, the Sony Club to uh, Nobu, and then now. You, and you've worked on many then, of those I, projects I, yes, now. Yes. yes. Well, 
Oh, that's a great story. Um, yeah, we're going to take a little break here. Um, I want to, and when we come back, we we'll talk about your approach and working with with chefs and how you actually accomplish uh, creating their vision. Um, so stay with us. This is on the industry on Heritage Radio Network. episode is brought to you by One House. At One House, we noticed that most serious chefs and managers don't hang out in brightly lit offices, so we've launched a new app, One House Beacon, to match top talent with competitive opportunities. One House Beacon provides employers and job seekers with a confidential, direct line of communication to our recruiters without the pushy and annoying extras. We don't send mass emails full of irrelevant recruiter junk. Download it now in Google Play or iTunes. At One House, we go out in the field to gather the best talent wherever they may be. We meet and talk to them like humans used to do back in the day. We are the people people. Our talent sourcing covers salaried dining room, kitchen, and corporate professionals. Drop us a line at one-haus.com or at info at one-haus.com for our confidential, up-to-date, and relevant career options, or if you're an operator seeking a culinary or management-level pro. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jimmy Yui. He's the founding principal of Yui Design, a James Beard Award-winning kitchen design agency. So, Jimmy, tell me a bit about your process of working with chefs and restaurateurs. I'll frame that actually a different way. Well, I was talking with Glenn Coben, um, Glenn Glenn and Company, who is actually how I met you. Um, And I know you worked with him on Del Posto, but he, he framed this question as, so you've worked with some of the greatest chefs in the planet. How are you able to find the soul of each project? Is there a secret sauce? So the process, yeah. finding the soul, like how do you do it? Okay. Um, yeah, is there a secret sauce? I, I, one of the things that uh, I believe in really, really firmly and something that um, I talk about with the guys in my office is that I think we're, you know, we're here to serve, right? All of us. And we just, all of us have a slightly different talent and a different way we can express that to serve people around us. We just happen to deliver drawings as the deliverable. But in truth, we're really, really here to serve you. And when, when you embrace the fact that we're, we're really serving you, the first thing that happens is, you really, really listen hard. I think the secret sauce is you re- re- truly, truly engage in listening and trying to understand what it is that is being asked of you. You know, and I think that's true. Not just, I think that's a universal truth. You know, it, whether you're a waiter, a cook, a designer, or you know, mm-hmm. a, a front door clerk. I mean, what we do is to, 
if we if we believe that uh, our our mission in life is to please you to 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 serve then we listen we try to capture the nuances of what makes you happy and capturing the nuance i think is also part of the secret sauce in listening and trying to uh, understand truly you know i i, I tell my the guys in my office is look you know it's 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 like you go to you you go to your hair hairdresser, and you probably go to the same one who's doing a good job, because you have a vocabulary where short means something, darker means something, and the nuances of your inflection mean something to that person. And there is a lot in that in that sentence that is unspoken but understood. There's a chemistry and an understanding. We try really really hard to arrive at that kind of a place with. The people we serve, so that we we can capture the nuance of what they're really saying to us. Smaller, bigger, you know, more open kitchen, open, uh, brighter, right? right? Um, when when we talk about tools, it's a lot more practical. You know, I want a six burner or whatever the tool might be. But you know what we do, of course, winds up becoming a um, a drawing that uh, demonstrates equipment. But all the really, really important decisions happen many, 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 many iterations before that. Well, how long does the process typically take? So, you know, like the typical restaurant um, is plus minus a year, you know, in that the freestanding restaurants, by and large, you know, you can, you can figure that uh, it takes you six months, you know, six months, nine months to build. I mean, that's, that's not so uncommon. And... The design and the documentation process can take three months, six months, you know. So it's some range that straddles this one-year mark. And, and I think our, our practice, we, we experience that very, very often, where from beginning to end, we're at, we get, a, we get the retained and we're at friends and family a year later. That kind of thing. Oh, I can't believe my phone's ringing. I'm oh, so it's sorry. good. It's, it feels like like holiday music. Well, and of course, you know, it's a, it's a client that's calling me. If you have to take it, we'll just change the whole direction of the show. Uh, that's a, uh, you know, the, you need a you need a poster like the movie theaters. Please turn off your uh, ringer. You know, after 127 episodes, I think Tell that's me, the first I'm, time that's happened. I but I love it because it felt very, it felt very holiday spirity. I your ringtone. I cannot believe I'm the first. Well, but that 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 makes you unique, like all of your kitchens that yeah. you design. It makes them unique. Well, so. The listening public, I'm very very sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's great. Uh, um, I don't do that in movie theaters, though. <laughs> uh, but you know, the 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 secret sauce, as you put it, I think uh, has everything to do with um, understanding where people want the land and I mean we're, we're so fortunate in that we work for I think the best practitioners of the business on the planet I, I, I believe that and I adore every one of them for what they do right and it's such a it's it's such a thrill and an amazing experience to be able to sit with somebody and really, really talk about their aspirations, their goals, what they're trying to do, their creativity. And, you know, this stuff is just bubbling out of them. And that's why they're taking all this risk and, and doing something. And they have a story and an attitude, right? They're, they're selling something. They're, they're 
right. and they bringing have something a vision, forward, right? And they you, have a vision. They're the one who right. can deliver it. And my job is to understand that uh, you said you wanted your hair a little bit shorter, and I need to be able to do that properly, right? Right. And kind of extract what that really meant. So the, there's, a, there's a certain amount of, um, in the beginning, you know, this kind of oozy part of it where m- most of the really important decisions get made really, really early, right? Because if you, if you plan a space poorly, Right, you you don't get to fix that later. I mean, you you know, you you bought a, a lousy stove that's really easy to replace, but if you put the stove in the wrong wrong end of the building, that's incredibly difficult to fix later. So you're stuck with certain kinds of geometries and distances and whatever that caused. Right, those are those be really become incurable obstacles. So our job in the beginning is really to to make sure that in the planning process. I understand where it is that you want to land. Um, you know, vis-a-vis, the dining room needs to be X big because it needs to deliver so many seats because the pro forma does certain things. And because the menu and your ideas are a certain way, the kitchen needs to be proportioned so that, in fact, it can do what it is you said you want it to do. Right. right? And that, that, that tug, tug pull is incredibly important, right? Because, you know, the one of the, one of the things that happens often is that you start out with a dining room that's really, really great, beautiful, has the right seat count, except the kitchen got too small somewhere along the line and you don't have storage and you don't have the tools and you know all the stuff happens after and cooks are incredibly resilient and incredibly creative and they're always expected to make it okay anyway. And that's kind of the curse and the blessing because the good news is they're able to. The bad news is... Well, particularly, you know, in the in the kind of labor market we have today where good help is incredibly hard to find and even harder to retain, you can't really have sweatshops and nasty kitchens and expect to have retention, right? Mm-hmm. Or, I mean, to even, even more importantly, before you get to the retention part, I don't know that the, you can execute well and, and kind of expect the kind of excellence that my clients are demanding without giving them the proper tools. I think it's it, it goes hand in hand now, especially because we now live in a world where culinary is no longer the back sweatshop, right? I mean, No, I mean, open kitchens is something that yeah. has certainly changed to become much more popular over the years. I mean, is there a particular project that you was... W- w- what was one of the most challenging projects you've had or something that's... that? I don't know. Is there is there one that sticks out that well, you you had to really you know, change the, um, what you're doing? I mean, one of the one of the things that's that uh, a common concern question is, you know, do we want an open kitchen? Right. I mean, it's that's kind of a real fundamental. What kind of a place is it? Does it have an open kitchen? And one of the things that that we've learned is that not everybody should have an open kitchen. Right. Right. I mean, you, you have to have put in a lot of effort to make sure that your kitchen functions in a way that being open is not a deterrent. Not everybody should do that. Have so, you had to convince some people not to do it? Or is that like well, into you know, the- in a way, you, the, the they, they kind of self-select, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, really crazy high-volume places don't want to be open kitchens because it's just way too, way too chaotic. It's not nothing that you as a customer want to experience, and 
most of the time they, they, they really self-select and the decisions are relatively straightforward. One of the things that uh, happens, I mean, this is a secondary benefit, I guess, is that open kitchens, in a way, you because you lose a wall, right, and you, you know the enclosure around the kitchen, mm-hmm. one of the first things that, things that happen is that it's spatially a little bit dense, denser than a closed kitchen where you have to replicate another corridor, you know? Right. So if you, if, you know, if you go to a restaurant with an open kitchen and you see the servers at a pass and the pass is the corridor that is basically right next to the dining room and there might be a table and a chair right next to the pass, right? So if you enclose that thing, you would have, you would add another corridor, you know? So there's, it, that's a residual kind of benefit. And that that's not why you would do this, but um, there are times when you know you we we work on projects where open kitchens are are part of the the story, and we immediately can say you know this is we can we can take the space and put the pass right up right where you want it to be, basically kind of in the middle of the dining room, and the the most sought after chairs are going to be right there next to that counter where the pass is. And that's kind of a cool story. And that's my favorite place to yeah, sit. Yeah, me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. No, you know, I love we, that. Glenn and I did uh, Gabrielle, you know, Gabrielle Gruther. Oh, right. And, um, Beautiful. While, Beautiful while it's not, I mean, that's kind of an in-between, right? It's it's a it's a open kitchen sort of because it's got yeah. a giant window. It's kind of partial. It's partial, yeah. right? And then the chef's table clearly is at the pass. Right. right. And, I mean, hey, that's the chair I want to sit in. Yeah. Right. <laughs> um, I'll call you for a reservation. Oh, yeah. We should go together. We should go. We'll take Glenn. We'll take Glenn. Glenn, you can come. (laughs) He's smiling right now. I hope he's listening. Um, Before we take a break, let me ask you my question from last week. I had on Tom Colicchio on episode 126. Everyone probably knows Tom. He's the founder of Crafted Hospitality. He's an award-winning celebrity chef, author, top chef judge, and social and political activist. So he wanted to know, where do you see kitchen design going? Do you see the big, cha- do you see the big changes happening in kitchen design? Yeah. Um, and as I address that question, the first thing is, I love Tom Colicchio. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. He was, um, and he was so great on the show. I loved having him on. The I think... Um, in, in the big picture, I think we more and more are paying, paying attention to ecology and energy. And we see those tangible moves in places like Energy Star. And manufacturers of appliances are having to respond to the standards that are hoist upon them. And ultimately, it's a good thing, right? Because without, without those rules and regulations, we we're really not going to get there all on our own. In the long run, I think the our industry, uh, food service equipment, kitchen equipment, you know, we're, we're pretty primitive, right? Because I think there's a primitive aspect to fire and cooking on, on fire. It's, it's not that sophisticated, and the industry has manufactured things that are pretty old, not so energy efficient. We're going to start seeing more and more of that in, in, in some of the, the movements that you see mm-hmm. are in uh, some, as, some parts of uh, the industry, but not so big yet. Um, okay. I like that answer. Yeah. Well, I think... I hope we get there sooner yeah. than later. You know, the, 
right now it's in our political environment right now it's it's very very difficult to tell which way we're going to go yeah that's a whole other show that's a different show (laughs) Um, on that note we're going to take another break Um, we're going to come back and play my speed round game and industry news discussion before we do I just want to remind everyone that All in the Industry is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network a member supported nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food HRN needs your support during our end of the year fundraiser As you may know, you probably know, this is a passion project for me. So the only way I can do my show here and everyone else on Heritage Radio to do their amazing shows is with your support. So if you can, please donate to HRN by going to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate, and we thank you in advance. Okay, we'll be right back. And this one is called Basilica by the Hollows. We'll be right back. Radio Network. I'm Sherry Bayer. My guest today is Jimmy Gooey. It's time for my speed round game. So I'm going to name a couple things and you're going to pick your preference. It's either or situation such as okay. chocolate or vanilla. Okay. Like that's an example. Okay. okay. So here we go. Eat in or eat out. Out. Wine, beer, cocktail, or mocktail. Wine. Tasting menu or a la carte. Uh, both. <laughs> All right. Small plates or large plates. Large place, mostly. Communal table or chef's counter? Chef's counter. Tipping or all-inclusive charge? I like, I'm starting to like all-inclusive. Okay. Designing open kitchens or closed kitchens? Open. Ramen, udon, or soba? Oh, that's an unfair one. Why is that unfair? I mean, come on, they're noodles. It is. Um, Soba. It was a tough one, I guess. Yeah, that's tough. All right. I had to give you a tough one. Two more. Cheese plate or dessert? Cheese. Manhattan, Brooklyn, or Tacoma Park? I'm bi-city. I think the right answer is Manhattan. Okay. There's no right or wrong, (laughs) but but fair enough. You're good at the game. Very fast. Okay, so industry news. Uh, Today, the New York Times' Pete Wells 
ran an article of his top New York restaurants of 2016. Um, he noted how he presented them in in the order of the intensity of his desire to go back, and it was a uh-huh. very um, it's a very diverse list. I mean, there's there were uh, four three-star restaurants, and the rest were two stars on his rating. And the the first one was Le Cuckoo. Yeah. Uh, Missy Robbins, Lilia's on the list, and Mr. Donahue's, and down to places like Olmsted and uh, Llama Inn. Um, I mean, all different types of cuisines and price ranges, and um, I think it's a it's a good list. When did I do too? Take? I think it's a really interesting list. Yeah. Um, I looked at that list thinking, I, you know, I haven't been to half of them, so that that gives me reason to search them out. I'd love to experience the the half that I hadn't done. Um, I mean, number one, Le Cuckoo. I, I think it's a it's a fabulous restaurant. I I really enjoyed my uh, my yeah. experience there. Me um, too. Right? It's and it's beautiful. I it's, mean, yeah. well, I I mean, my take when going in there, I think the whole space and there's an open kitchen and it's a stunning yeah. stunning environment. And they deliver such a great experience. That's that. Everything about it, right? The, the interior, the feel of it, the service, mm-hmm. and ultimately Daniel's food. But, you know, it, it, I think it's constructed so well that all the pieces fall in place and it makes you happy. Yes, it does. And it was just, it's, I mean, I've, I've been to most everything on this list. Have um, I haven't been to Gunter Seeger, which... Right. Um, he's known from yeah. from Atlanta, yeah. and I mean Pete, Pete Wells has noted in his reviews that that he's also changed his tasting menu to offer a little less expensive tasting menu option because that was a I mean that's one of the pricier ones on the list. Um, I'd like to like to. I want to try out. it. I, yeah. I, I, I've been meaning to go to uh, Gunter Seeger. I haven't. That's that's been on my list to go to. Um, Missy Robbins is one of my favorite favorite cooks. She, she's Me too. so fabulous. Did you work with her? Um, oh, I, I worked for her when she was the Avoche chef. Avoche. Yeah. Okay, I know, because yeah, you were involved yeah, with yeah. Time Warner right. projects. Right. Yes, so no, I had the, uh, amazing. I, I had this, the great pleasure of working for her to do Avoche and loved her food ever since. Yeah, no, she's 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 wonderful, and um, no, congratulations to, to everyone on the list. I think it's you know it's a diverse list, though. It is I, diverse. I, and some on, on, I guess I don't know why it would be unexpected on the fact that uh, I hadn't been to some of them, but it's I, I think it's really great that it's a diverse list. Yeah, well, it's hard in New York City. I mean, I'm I'm constantly dining out, and I can't get everywhere, but. Um, uh, you know, a lot of these, I mean, Agern I've been to, yeah. which is uh, in Time Warner Center. I mean, in um, Grand Central. Grand Central, yeah. And it's, um, that was an amazing experience. I mean, there were a couple of the new Nordic on right. here. And then he, he also has a Chinese restaurant, How Noodle, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. which is very casual. Yeah. Uh, so it's it's a mix. And, um, yeah, the Nordic movement is really interesting, right? Mm-hmm. To me, it was... Despite the fact that uh, they, you know, um, Noman, that whole contingent is rocking, it was a little bit unexpected for me that uh, the Nordic mo- kind of cuisine and the the popularity here in uh, Manhattan. Uh, it's been, I feel, for the past few years, yeah. the 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 Scandinavian Nordic. There's been a few other openings. Yeah. I mean, also on this list is Aska. Right. Um, which which got a glowing review, and um, I think 
I've been to the original Asuka a few years ago, um, but the, this new one I haven't been to yet. So that's on my list. Uh, and then, I mean, more casual, you have Mr. Donahue's, which yes. is like very like uh, just retro American restaurant that's, I think, 12 seats. Yeah. Um, no, that's cool. Yeah, it is cool. So, well, congratulations to all of them. And I would also, before we take a break, just give a little... Shout out, I guess I'm shouting out to myself, but I just want to thank um, Total Food Service. They came up with a list, Top Women in Metro New York Food Service and Hospitality 2017, which I am on, and I'm quite honored. It's a really it's a really impressive list of women in the industry, and the fact that I'm, I'm among them, um, just, yeah, completely honored. And so thank you to the publishers. Fred Clashman and Leslie Clashman. So um, that is that. And now we're going to take another little break, and I'm going to come back. I'm going to do my solo dining experience. This is all in the industry on Heritage Radio Network. And this one is called Let's Not by Shadowbox. We'll be right back. Welcome back to All in the Industry on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Sherry Bayer. It's time for my solo dining experience. First, before I give this week's solo dining, I just want to give a little correction on my last one. On Last week, I talked about Chumley's, and I mispronounced a couple names. So the executive chef is Victoria Blamey, not Blarney. I think I, it was like a typo the way I wrote it down. And the owner is... Um, Alessandro Borginion. So my apologies on the mispronunciation, but everyone should go get the Chumley's burger. Now, a completely opposite solo dining experience today. I'm flashing back to last year when I was in Tokyo, a solo experience I had. So I went to Sushi Yoshitaki. Here's the rundown. Location, 8719 Ginza, Tokyo, Japan. The concept a hideaway premium sushi bar known for the finest sushi in an intimate atmosphere. The chef, Masahiro Yoshitaki. Why did I go? Because this three Michelin star restaurant came highly recommended by chef friends. My experience. Now, once I found this hidden spot with the help of my GPS and a friendly local who led me to the right (laughs) building, because I was across the street, and it was up an elevator on the third floor. So once I found it, I settled in to this intimate seven-seat sushi counter. I was presented with the menu, offered tea, and then the omakase tasting began. I was in what I will call the leading spot at the end of the counter. So the first 
first person served by the chef as he presented each dish or piece to every diner going down the line. What did I get? The omakase consisted of kubako crab with jelly. There was many sashimi and sushi pieces. There was tender octopus, steamed abalone with liver sauce, which was the chef's signature item, smoked Spanish mackerel, and steamed egg custard with sea urchin. My take, it was simply wonderful. And some of my favorite bites were of the sushi. There was fatty tuna, prawn, and eel. The ambiance, minimalistic, intimate sushi counter right in front of the chef. It's perfect for sushi lovers who want to be cooked for and handed pieces of sushi by a master and are willing to splurge. Interesting tidbit. Yoshitaki has been described as less traditional than his competitors. He was awarded three Michelin stars in 2012, the same year he was awarded, he was inducted into the Michelin Guide. Personal fun fact. So I had been traveling in Japan with my friend Pichet Ong, who got us the reservation, but the only way he could get us in was if we went separately, because they only had one seat available at each seating. So I went at 6 o'clock, and he went at 9 the cost was $240, that's um, U.S. dollars, that's including everything. It's a bargain, according to my, my guest, who would, who would know. Um, would I go back? Yes, but I'd probably splurge on some other Japanese, uh, some of his Japanese competition first, just to see, have some other experiences. And their website is sushi-yoshitaki.com. So have you been been there, no, Jimmy? No, but I'm salivating. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought it would. I, I've been meaning to talk about this one, and I figured it was. It, it made sense to talk about it on a show uh, with you. I, I miss Japan. I, I haven't been in a few years. Yeah. Um, and you know, like like your find, there are so many fine fine restaurants in uh, Tokyo, and and some of them you know, nobody knows about. Right? They don't have Michelin stars, but they're that. Equally fabulous. I, oh, you, I I loved I loved Japan. I yeah. can't wait to go back. I mean, the food is just yeah, it's just gems <laughs> everywhere. Did you go to a fish market? I did. I woke up very early in the yeah. morning. Um, I stood in line for the one. What sushi die is the yeah. that line? I think I still would have been in line today if I waited. <laughs> it was very long. We went, well, we waited a couple hours for the one next door and had omakase at five thirty in the morning. Yeah, and it was it was breakfast it was of amazing. champions sushi. Yeah. yeah, no, it was. You have to do it. Um, so yes, that was that was fantastic. Okay, so on my next show after the new year, I'm having on Nick Kakonis. He's the co-owner and co-founder of Alinea Next, the Aviary and Royster, and he's the CEO of Talk, which is a cloud-based comprehensive booking system for restaurants, events, and pop-ups world, world, worldwide. So, Jimmy, can you ask a question for Nick? Yes. Um, Nick, uh, I would like to ask how you see the economics of high-end restaurants evolving with... Um, the escalating cost of labor and real estate that we see all around us and many of our um, colleagues and great restaurateurs are making decisions to vacate and such. Um, I, I imagine you guys have a strategy, a way you think about this. Love, love for you to share. Awesome. I will ask him. And um, that's the show. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much. I mean, you're, you're, 
we we didn't get into all of the restaurants you've worked on beyond Del Posto with Morimoto, and I mean you you've had so many amazing projects, Italy. Um, I'm I'm in awe of oh, of everything thanks. you've accomplished. So. Thank you. Congratulations. For Thank you. Um, We're just really, really fortunate to be working for great, great practitioners in the business. Yes. Well. Well, you do. You do a terrific job. So, thank you for coming on the show. My guest today has been J- Jimmy Yui. He's the founding principal of Yui Design, a James Beard Award-winning kitchen design agency. His website is yuidesign.com. You can follow him at Jimmy Yui. You can follow me at Sherry Bayer, at Bayer PR, at All Industry. My Facebook page is All in the Industry. My websites are BayerPublicRelations.com and SherryBayer.com. Many thanks to my show's fall season sponsor, One House Hospitality Headhunters. You can find them at one-house.com, on Twitter at one underscore house, and Instagram one house, and that's spelled O-N-E-H-A-U-S. That's a wrap for 2016. I am going to be back on Wednesday, January 11th, 2017, at 4 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, my traditional time in the new year. And I was thinking perhaps during the break you'd like to just go to iTunes or go to Heritage Radio Network's website. You can listen to any of our archive shows. And on iTunes you can leave a review. I'd actually love for people to go and leave reviews so I can get some more up there. I would like to thank my engineer, David, and everyone at Heritage Radio Network. I love being a part of this this whole company and nonprofit. So if you have it in your heart, please donate to us. Uh, we'd appreciate it. I'm Sherry Bayer. Thank you for being a part of All in the Industry. Happy holidays. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.